Welcome back. Episode 12, Signals from the Deep. Um, we got a heck of a guest today on a very important day for the podcast. February 28th of last year, the one-year anniversary of Signals from the Deep. Today is the 27th. We are recording it just a day early, but uh, a momentous occasion, and it only makes sense that we bring in a hell of a guy. He played 674 games in the National Hockey League and was one of the best power forwards in his day. And he will tell you and others will tell you that he is a very proud Michigan State Sparty alum and current NHL on TNT and MSG Network studio analyst, minority owner of the Atlanta Gladiators of the ECHL, which we will get into a little bit later. And without a question, and perhaps I think most importantly, a trailblazing pioneer in the game of hockey, Anson Carter. Ace, welcome to the podcast, buddy. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I was going to wear my Michigan State Spartan jersey, but I thought it would be a little bit too much. <laughs> I don't know if the Kraken fans are ready for that just yet, so I came as is in a neutral hoodie, no logos, no nothing. There you go, and you're styling, <laughs> styling and profiling. Uh, I love it. So let's just jump right in, Ace. Uh, anytime I have anybody on the podcast, the first question I got to ask for the great career that you had, everyone has a start in hockey. What was your start? Where did you develop the passion for the game? Yeah, my start was probably not unlike anyone else's. Uh, my start growing up in Toronto. Uh, Nikki, you know, you grew up in Chicago and Illinois, mm. uh, a hockey playing state. Well, multiply that times 100,000. <laughs> That's what Toronto was like. You know, it's it's like the, the traditional hockey markets here in the U.S., but on steroids. <laughs> And I started playing street hockey, the tennis ball and the ball. In the wintertime, we use uh, sticks and pucks in our feet. And eventually, I, I graduated into to playing on the ice. And it was only because all my friends said, hey, you can make all these moves on the street using tennis balls, but you can't skate. So how do you, what do you think about that? And my competitive nature, I used to sit around and watch Hockey Night in Canada every single Saturday. In fact, I used to sit around doing wall squats, trying to build my quads <laughs> up watching Hockey Night in Canada. And really, that was my passion was developed mm -hmm. uh, right from a young age in Toronto, growing up. My parents were immigrants, uh, came to Toronto in 1967 from Barbados. And playing hockey and being a fan of hockey was the way they were able to you know, get acclimated within the community there in Toronto. Awesome. And when you talk about playing hockey at a younger age, um, I want to take you through a couple of your stats, thanks to Elite Prospects. From 90 to 91, you played for the Don Mills Flyers. 67 games, 142 <laughs> points. I think we call those video game numbers, right, Ace? Something like that. 1991-92, Wexford Raiders, 40 points in 42 games. But the point I'm getting at here is being from Toronto, you end up playing college hockey in the United States, where I would assume, right, most kids who grow up in Canada, it's becoming more and more prevalent now where more and more players are going to college. But was there an opportunity, as I'm sure there was, to play junior hockey in Canada? And why did you choose the United States college route? Well, I, I chose going the college route. There's, there's a couple of different reasons. I think the most important one is probably because I wasn't really physically mature to play against these 16, 17, 18, 20, 19, 20-year-old 20 men in the OHL. And there's a different game back then. It was a little bit more violent, I would call it. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the, the players police themselves. It's not, hey, let's go. It's, we're going to go whether you like it or not. <laughs> so I wasn't ready at that age to get my face caved in as a 16-year-old. 
And I can tell you how immature my body was. When I was drafted the National Hockey League, Nick, I was six one and a half, 154 pounds as an 18-year-old. So imagine me as a 16-year-old. Like It wasn't happening. Uh, I think everyone knew I wanted to go the college route. And also a big part of it was I never saw a ton of black players playing in the league, to be perfectly candid. Mm-hmm. So I never thought there was an opportunity for a player like myself, a skilled hockey player like myself, to, to play in the NHL. So my parents always said, let's try to play hockey and use it as a route to an avenue to get your education. So that was always my focus. And, and even then, people thought you go to college, you're soft. <laughs> you weren't serious about hockey because you weren't all in playing the OHL, Ontario Hockey League. And that wasn't the case. I just I needed more time to develop. And I won that college experience. That's and you're awesome. seeing more and more players playing today now that take that college route. Right, exactly. And how about uh, role models growing up for you? Um, family, friends, players? Uh, who were who some people that you looked up to that you, you found some inspiration in? I would say first and foremost, my parents, my mom and dad. Uh, I was blessed to grow up in an amazing household in Toronto where I've got my, I'm a middle child, older sister, Michelle. She played soccer at University of Western Ontario. My brother, David. Uh, he's an amazing chef, went to Culinary Institute in, in Windsor. Uh, but I think my parents were probably the two biggest influences in my life because you'd always hear over the years when you listen to people talk about the game when I was growing up and they would talk about these kids from Western Canada, from the prairies, good old, good old, good old Alberta boy. <laughs> Family was farmers. They get up early, great roots. Um, you know, great work ethic. That's what a good hockey family is like. And I always said my family's the same thing. My parents came to Canada with squat <laughs> without two nickels to rub together. And they're able to build this life for myself, my brother, my sister, to the point where growing up, Nikki, I thought we were rich. <laughs> you couldn't tell me otherwise. I thought we were loaded until then I started playing junior hockey with other kids in actual downtown Toronto. I was like, oh, that's what being rich is all about. <laughs> I didn't know growing up in Scarborough, we weren't rich at all. Yeah. And I'd always get annoyed because everyone would say, you're in Scarborough? Oh, my gosh, Scarborough's a rough area. It was never that way growing up for me. And I think it's a big testament to how our parents raised myself, my brother, my sister. From a sports perspective, I love Michael Jordan. Uh, MJ was everything. Like Mike, I want to be like Mike, like everyone else. To the shaved head, the Air Jordan shoes. <laughs> and from a hockey perspective, I love Mike Bossy. Because he shot right. It was either Mike Bossy or Wayne Gretzky. And Gretz shot left. I shot right. So that's why I ended up wearing number 22 as a, as a young kid playing in Toronto. And as your hockey career ascended, in 1992, you're drafted by Quebec. You didn't play for them. You went on to play for eight teams in the National Hockey League, Washington Capitals, Boston Bruins, Edmonton Oilers, New York Rangers, L.A. Kings, Vancouver Canucks, Columbus Blue Jackets, Carolina Hurricanes, and you shoot me down, and I would love some clarification. Wikipedia has you playing four, uh, 14 games and four assists for the Ottawa Senators in 2007-8. Is that true? I'm just curious. Yeah, no, that's not true. Okay. That might be uh, that might be Lugano. Someone must be messing around with my Wikipedia yeah. because I need to get in there and change <laughs> yeah. that around. Right. I got to pump some of my stats and take away some of those teams, I think, too. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get on the Wikipedia and uh, start helping you edit. But then you did end um, in, uh, in Lugano in Switzerland in 2008-2009. So with all that being said, I, I know you maybe don't want to be biased to one place or another, but was there a place or two in your stops in your career that you were like, you really enjoyed life. You loved the team. You loved living in the city. And then second part of that, the decision to go to Switzerland and play your last year of professional hockey there. What was that like? 
Yeah, you know, I, I tell people, and it's actually helped me in my broadcasting career, having that experience. I played on the West Coast, whether it's Vancouver or L.A. I played on the East Coast in New York or Boston. I played original six markets. I played in a developing market like, say, Columbus or Carolina, you know, Midwest. Like, I played kind of everywhere in Canada, the mm -hmm. prairies, Edmonton. Yep. Um, and you know what? I enjoyed my time every single place I played. I never took it for granted, to be honest with you. I never bought a place wherever I played because I always thought going back to understanding and knowing at that time as a black hockey player, maybe I wasn't viewed as other hockey players were. Mm -hmm. And the reason why that thought process crept into my mind is, you know, getting drafted in the 10th round when I thought I was going the first round the following year, not speaking to the Quebec Nordiques, then they became the Colorado Avalanche. My entire four years at Michigan State University when I was an All-American, a Hobie Baker candidate, world junior champion team canon like not speaking the organization once so it was, it was clear to me and my family that maybe things are a little bit different so don't take anything for granted and you might get bounced around a little bit that's okay but enjoy and appreciate every single city and market that you're playing and that's exactly what i did and then that final year when i ended up playing in lugano i was going to retire and my agent had called me and said there's an offer to play in lugano i had an offer to play in russia i said thanks but no thanks i'm not going over there and I had a bad experience there when we were, we were locked down in 2005. Pat Brisson, my agent at CAA, they put together a World Stars Tour, and I had bananas thrown at me. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> I'm good with Russia. I'm going to pass. But then Lugano came up, and I had to look and see where Lugano, Switzerland was. There was the southern border of, of Switzerland, on uh, the border of Italy and, and Switzerland. I was like, we're in. I'm definitely in for sure. <laughs> you like I pasta, did. right? There you oh, go. yeah. Fresh. All in. Al dente, you name it. I was in all day, every day. And yeah. we had an amazing flat. We had two cars. Uh, we could drive to Milano, take 20 minutes. We call it Milan here in North America. Mm -hmm. uh, Lake Como was like 15-minute drive next to Lake Lugano. Like, it was beautiful. Mm -hmm. And my youngest daughter was, I think, Michaela was two. So she was still pretty young. My wife was pregnant with our youngest one. So it was a great time to be alive a great time to live in in europe and you know what nikki gave me an eye-opening experience because now when i see european players come over i could appreciate what they're going through mm. like at that time i was 34 years old so i had a lot of life experience under my belt but i could appreciate what an 18 or 19 year old kid would be going through coming from switzerland or finland or sweden or russia and the challenges they might face because we had a tutor that came to our house three days a week and we're speaking fluent Italian after the first, I guess, three months. Mm -hmm. Like, we're all in. So we go to the Farmacia, we go to the grocery store, and our, our Italian was off the chain. <laughs> now, you come back to America, you don't use it, you lose it. Because yeah. that wasn't the native tongue I grew up with. But right. I really think that experience helped me understand what European players go through when they try to come over to North America and play in the National Hockey League. When it comes to Italian, the only thing I'm fluent in is eating. So just just to be just to be clear uh, in that, but I'm, it just sounds like such an incredible experience. And like though you loved playing, I'm sure it was maybe a little bit difficult to go to the rink at times when you're just around this new culture and food and people. Um, so I'm sure, at least from how you described it, just an incredible incredible experience for you. Um, you were involved in some pretty big trades in your career. Um, Adam Oates, Bill Ranford, and Rick Tockett when you went to Boston, and Bill Guerin when you went to Edmonton. Um, when you think back on those trades, anything come to mind, um, especially when you're involved with you know, some other pretty great players like you were back in the day? I guess you just learned that it's a business. Mm -hmm. uh, the very first time we asked for a trade, and I was still at Michigan State, we asked for Colorado to move my rights. They ended up moving me to, to Washington. 
And I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to play in Washington. You know, in college, you don't get traded. In junior hockey, you might get traded. College, you don't get traded. Mm -hmm. You decide where you want to go. And when I was traded that very first time, I wasn't playing that much. You know, it wasn't a time when young players like today are just given jobs. Mm -hmm. You had to take a job from somebody, rip it from like their clutches. <laughs> and it wasn't easy. And I play on the fourth line. I get sent back down to the minors, light up the AHL, get called back up again, play on the fourth line. So I knew I had to like kind of pay my dues and wait my time out. But when I was traded to the Boston Bruins, I was actually in Virginia. I live with two girls when I was at Michigan State, two girls that played field hockey, Sarah and Terry. Terry, amazing field hockey players. And I was at Terry's house with her parents watching the Washington Bullets, they were called at the time, before they had to change their name. So we're watching the game, and halftime, across the ticker, oh my gosh, Caps make blockbuster deal, Nikki. More news <laughs> at halftime, oh. or, or coming up next. Yeah. So I look at Terry, I'm like, oh my God, I'm finally going to play now. I wonder who they're going to trade. Is it going to be Bonsai, like Peter Bonjour or Pivo, yeah. Yeah. you know, Pavanka? Like, I wonder who they're going to trade. So I, I flipped my phone on because I had one of those Motorola flip phones on. Mm. And back then, you couldn't keep your phone on all the time because you just get roasted for your minutes and the airtime. <laughs> so I turned my phone on and I called Jason Allison like, Ali, we're finally going to play, man. Mm. Blockbuster deal. Did they free up some room for us? And he goes, we got traded, dummy. Oh. I was like, what? <laughs> I thought it was a blockbuster. We never even played. What do you mean we got traded? Yeah. What kind of blockbuster was that? Mm. And he told me that the, the who else was going the other way. And I was like, wow. So then I checked my voicemail and I hear, you've got 100 new messages. <laughs> <laughs> so it's Harry Sinden looking for me a million times. David mm. Poyle's looking for me. Mm -hmm. I got all these scouts looking for me. My mom's crying on the phone because yeah. she knows the history of Boston and like the racial stuff that went down back in the day. She wants to know if I'm going to be okay. Yeah. But uh, I learned right away that it was a business mm -hmm. and I probably shouldn't be buying anything anytime soon. And that was probably <laughs> the biggest moral of the story I learned from that. Yeah, it's uh, absolutely a business and uh, there's some some great trade stories out there about when people are traded, the pregame naps, or in some <laughs> cases, uh, my dad uh, was traded when my mom was in the process of giving birth. So it, you're, it's never <laughs> off limits, right, Ace? I mean, it's just you're never you're never off limits from being traded. Um, it's business. <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. Um, now, flash forward to, look, you had a great career, um, but I, I think you really – ascended to great heights in life after hockey. Um, how'd you get your start in broadcasting? And for those who don't know, and I'm sure you'll run through it, um, you did broadcasting for NBC, for the National Hockey League, back when they had the TV rights. Uh, the NBC Sports Network doing Notre Dame hockey um, on the TV side. Olympics, MSG Network, Sportsnet up in Canada, and obviously being a fixture for the National Hockey League on TNT, but I'd love to know the start of your broadcasting career. Was it always something that maybe you thought could be something after you done you were done playing and where you're at now? Yeah, it wasn't something I thought about. I thought when I was finished playing hockey, I was going a different direction. We had a lockout in 2005. I started a production company. I produced a movie called Bald. I ended up selling it about a kid going bald in, co in college. It's like a, a comedy, almost like Porky's. I grew up with Porky, so it was something similar along those lines. <laughs> and living in California during the offseason, I had the entertainment bug. I had the pleasure of skating on Sundays and Mondays with Pat Brisson, CA Hockey, and one of your limited partners there at Seattle Kraken, JB, Jerry Bruckheimer. Mm. 
So JB had his skates on Sundays and Breeze had their skates on Mondays. And it was like almost a who's who, the entertainment space. Right. Michael Rotenberg, the founder of Three Arts Entertainment. Um, Brian Turner, the godfather of hip hop at Priority Records. You know, he, he founded like California Raisins and NWA and Master P. Mm -hmm. And then you just had like Pat Brisson on the hockey side. So, and Tom Bernard, um, the co-president of Sony Picture Classics. So I was able to sit and just take in like osmosis from these different people about what the entertainment business was like. So I thought that's the direction I was going to go in, but I would always gravitate back to hockey because I'd always watch games and I'd complain to Breeze about the guys on television mm -hmm. because there was always, I felt like there was always tough guys on TV and they'd give their perspective and not everybody sees the game the same way. Right. It's, it's very different between player to player. So I remember I called Breeze a couple different times and he said, you should be on television doing talking about hockey. I was like, nope, I don't want to do that. It might be too much work, and I want to go in a different direction. And I just kept calling him complaining. He finally hung up on me. <laughs> he says, enough. Call me back when you want to jump on the television. <laughs> so <laughs> I finally called him back. I said, okay, let me give this a try. And they called up NHL Network. And NHL Network said, okay, we're going to give you a couple shows. Just a couple, because we don't know if you're going to like us. And quite frankly, we don't know if we're going to like you. Mm -hmm. I was like, that's fair enough. And I went to Toronto. Jumped on air. Nikki, there was no, this is what a rundown is. This is your IB <laughs> that goes in your air. Yeah. Here's it's your makeup. Camera. We're going to break. This is the toss. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. It was, I'm sitting there with Catherine Tappan. I think Billy Jaffe, I think too. Yeah. And it's like, okay, you guys are on three, two, one, boom. And that was it. Yeah. So yeah. I get back home. In the deep end, I'm, right? I'm, Thrown right in the deep yeah. end. Right in yeah. the deep end. Yeah. And I wasn't quite sure how I did. I was like, well, you don't really know. You haven't done it before. Mm -hmm. And I'm walking my dogs. I've got great Danes. So I'm walking the dogs like I do every day. I get a phone call. And it's NHL never called me saying, hey, what, how do you think? I said, yeah, it was pretty fun. They're like, yeah, you're pretty good at this. You want to try this out? And I said, yeah, I would like to get more reps. Um, like anything else, I want to practice at it. If I'm going to do it, I'm going to work my behind off to be, to be really good at it. Mm -hmm. And that's how it kind of happened. It, it started from there. I made my way to NBC Sports, but even before I got there, I went to ESPN, did a bunch of college hockey games. I did a, uh, some games for Fox Sports for LA Kings, Luke Robitaille and that group out there. And I went to M NBC Sports. I was very fortunate to have uh, Sam Flood be the boss there. He liked my work there. So I'm eternally grateful for Sam and, you know, give me the opportunity to go there and work there. And then I did college hockey there. I did world championships at four o'clock in the morning, <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> Put in some Olympic shifts. Like yeah. I was willing to do Nikki anything that I had to do to get those reps. Mm -hmm. You know, people think you just jump on TV and you just you're on national TV and that's how it works. I was grinding. Yeah. College hockey wasn't sure how many people were watching, but I was preparing like it was a Stanley Cup final. Mm -hmm. World Championships. Latvia is playing against the Czechia. Four o'clock in the morning. I'm up in the morning at one o'clock prepping, studying, to get a, you know a cup of tea in me. I'm ready to go right away yeah. for four o'clock. There might have been two viewers watching. I didn't care. Like, that was my way of preparing. And Notre Dame was actually the same thing. We didn't have the top resources there for college hockey. But I always said, if I could call a Notre Dame college hockey game here in NBC Sports, if they ever gave me the tap to call an NHL game, I'm going to be ready. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like driving a go-kart. And then they're like, okay, your go-kart's your college sports. But then you get to the NHL. Here's your Mercedes-Benz with yeah. all the bells and whistles. Yeah. Like, you could do it. It's easy. So that's how I kind of went about my business. And then I was very lucky to work with Kenny Albert, Dave Strader, rest in peace, The Voice, and Doc, Doc Emmerich. Like, I've worked with some of the best in the game, Chris Cuthbert, like Chris Cuthbert, excuse me, 
it's been an amazing run, but you have to be fortunate. You have to be blessed. You got to be lucky, but you also have to be willing to, to put in the time and, and work at it. And that's what I've been doing. I, I watch a lot of people in our business and they don't take it for granted. You have to love what you're doing. There's a lot of long hours, as you know. Yep. And if you don't love what you're doing, you'll get exposed pretty quickly. And I'm just happy. I just love what I'm doing. Yeah. And do you think that is the great separator for you? Um, is is the work ethic? I'm, I'm, it was, I'm sure the same exactly as when you were a player, hardest working guy, and in the broadcasting business now. Because look, everybody has a different style. Everybody does things a little bit differently. But do you think it is not only the reps that you've gotten, but the amount of prep you put into every show, to every game, to every appearance that you're a part of? It, it certainly is. I go back to my parents again. My parents, it was drilled into my head. It's not a fair world. <laughs> like, don't let anyone tell you that it's fair. It's not fair. And you have to understand, as a black man in this world, as a black woman, you've got to work twice as hard at whatever you want to try to achieve. Whether it's right or wrong, you need to have that mentality. And that's the mentality that I always took. Whether I was drafting the 10th round, I was going to work my rear end off to be an All-American at school, carve out a decent NHL career, to being on television now. I don't want to be outworked. I always thought when I was growing up, there was some kid throwing around tires, lifting iron bars, throwing chains around in Siberia somewhere, <laughs> trying to get to the National Hockey League. Yeah. So who am I to pass up that free gym membership, you know, at Premier Fitness mm-hmm. to, you know, not work out? And it's the same as an analyst now, too. I watch hockey 24-7, the point where my kids are always yelling at me, Daddy, you, you watch hockey again? I got the game on the family room. <laughs> Game in the living room, game yeah. in the master bedroom, game yeah. up here in my office. Yeah. I've got games on everywhere, so if I leave the room, yeah. I could always pick up on a game and see what's going on. Right. And I say to my kids, hey, you like those shoes you're wearing? <laughs> yeah. You're watching, it's paying for those shoes, okay? So settle down. You're <laughs> beaking me back there. Put it into perspective, right? <laughs> so they, they, they pipe down pretty quick after yeah. I say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, another part uh, of your career that as uh, you've evolved into is is owner of a hockey team. Take me through that process of the uh, Atlanta Gladiators of the ECHL. Yeah, I've, I've always wanted to get involved with ownership, even back to the NHL side. Back in 05, we're locked out. I had spoke to, I spoken to the league about, I had a friend of mine in LA, we tried to buy the Ducks. And it goes back to sitting in those rooms with JB, Jerry Bruckheimer and Pat Brisson, and uh, Anders Eisner, his dad, Michael, is the chairman of Disney. And he was telling me that, the ducks are for sale. If you put 25 million bucks together, you could have them. And that kind of started my process off, you know, looking and seeing what that would look like. Cause I always thought that having an impact on the game, yeah, you can play the game. It's cool, but to have a real impact, you want to have a seat at the table, the ownership level. And that's always where my head has been. Uh, being here in Atlanta since, since 2009, I've always looked at, at being a potential opportunity here to, to have a team here. Cause I raised $400 million from a Swiss group to try to, by the Thrashers back then, the Hawks, Phillips Arena. It didn't happen, but we end up staying here. And I've always believed in this market here in Atlanta. So when the Gladiators became available, I jumped on it with my partner, Alex Campbell. It was a real distressed asset. Like, we knew going in, like, what we had to do. Like, we only had, like, two or three employees. Everyone had quit. Accounts were closed. Mm. It wasn't the ideal, like, smooth transition to an asset that was, like, performing very well. So we've had to roll up our sleeves the last you know, two years and put a different, a lot of different things in place to, uh, to turn things around off the ice. But it was a learning experience for me because I've got all this knowledge, institutional knowledge at the NHL level, but not from the ECHL level. So it's been a great learning experience to understand how this league works. And the biggest, my biggest takeaway from the first two years is having access to players. Mm-hmm. For the NHL, everyone's trying to get to the, to the NHL. So you could get 
ECHL players, AHL players, KHL players, Swedish Elite League, whatever, whatever. But when you're in the ECHL, you're a little bit lower down in the totem pole. Right. <laughs> so it becomes a struggle to find players if you run into injuries or if your NHL affiliate pulls your guys up. So, mm-hmm. And you got that plus we get a two-prong approach. Yes, we want to try to win a Kelly Cup championship, but we also want to develop our players mm-hmm. and be a place where players want to play so they get the chance to get elevated up the AHL. So right. um, it's been a great experience so far. It's been a great learning experience, but my, my eyes are on the prize. I want to try to continue to grow hockey here, whether it's the amateur level, the minor pro hockey level, or maybe one day the NHL will come back. Yeah, and similar to what's going on here in Seattle where the growth of the game is continuing, and obviously when you have a National Hockey League franchise, it's going to put everything through the roof. I'd love to know, can you can you describe the market down in Atlanta? What is the hockey market like? What's the hunger? What's the thirst for hockey? Oh, there's there's tons of hunger here. There's a... a it's I don't I don't want to say it's insatiable because it's not Toronto just yet because mm-hmm. we don't have an NHL team. But when a team comes back, you're going to see like when the team left here, it wasn't because there was a lack of support. It was because the team wasn't tied to the arena bonds downtown. You know, it was called Phillips Arena back then. The Atlanta Hawks were tied to the bonds. The Thrashers weren't tied to the bonds, mm-hmm. and the ownership group back then wasn't the strongest. They're pro basketball. They didn't really live here in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. So you, you put all that stuff together, plus the location being downtown, you got a recipe for disaster. Now, the hockey playing community is uptown, either here in Buckhead where I live or North Fulton County or up in Duluth or up in Cobb County. That's where all the hockey fans are. And that's where the Atlanta Fire is, the Atlanta Phoenix, the Mad Hatters, the Junior Thrashers, the Lady Thrashers, Center Ice, all the hockey organizations, minor hockey organizations are north of downtown. Mm-hmm. And everyone's like hungry for the game of hockey. Yeah. So we've seen... A lot of growth in population because the population shift after the pandemic, everyone moving down south. Right. And a lot of those folks are coming from the Midwest, like Chicago and St. Louis, and coming from the Northeast, like Pennsylvania and New York. So you're, you're seeing a lot more hockey fans down here than you even had back in 2009 when I moved here, which has been very encouraging. Yeah, and the importance, too, of grassroots, right, getting youth getting everybody involved as, as quickly as they can, even if it's just, hey, I, I have interest in wanting to go out and skate, and then maybe skating lead, you know, leads to, to actually playing hockey. So um, keep up the, the good work down there and just growing the game, right? I mean, that's at the end of the day, we love what we do, but to be able to grow the game and get it in front of more people and more accessibility for kids and for adults to want to, who want to try it, that's, I think, the biggest thing for me. So um, good on you, uh, Ace, for, for leading the charge down there. Um, and, and speaking about leading and being a leader, um, it is Black History Month. It is Black Hockey History Month. And I'd love to get some insight from you on, on uh, when you look back on your career um, with that in mind, uh, what are some things you are, you are proud of, um, the things that you helped pioneer? Um, and, and to be real, and I know you're an incredibly honest guy, some of the difficulties that you face, because I know that those are very important to talk about as well. For example, what, what you brought up earlier about what happened to you in Russia and, and you know, other things that you've been through um, that have made you stronger, um, but have also helped you be a real leader uh, to a lot of other kids and hockey players and people in society that, that want to do what they love. Yeah, there, there's so many things. And I've, if you know me well enough, you're right. I'm, I've never been one to bite my tongue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe it works against me before and now it's working <laughs> in my favor. Yeah. Uh, but I've always been brutally honest about everything. And you're going to know exactly what you're getting uh, from me. It's it's really black and white. There's no real gray area with me. I'd say the thing I'm most proud of is just establishing a face for the game 
for kids that look like me coming up or you don't feel like you have to be a tough guy or a fighter. I thought when I was growing up, I didn't see many, many black players in the National Hockey League. And if I did, they were like tough guys. And I thought the first part of my career, my first year or two, I was getting pigeonholed into that role. My first year in particular, not my first two years, my first year where they trying to make me into a fourth line guy. And I was like, it's not happening. You know, I had, I think, 19 goals in 20 games, I think, or 27 games in the NHL. Like, nothing about my game said, I'm going to be a tough guy. <laughs> so I was willing to be a little bit more patient, whereas other black players I would speak to said that's they had to take that role because they were so hungry to get to the National Hockey League. And I said, no, I'm going to be a little bit more patient, and I'm going to take my time. I'm going to play the game I want to play because I want other kids coming up after me that look like me. And their parents, more importantly, to say, hey, you could play in the NHL. You don't have to be just a tough guy. You could be a scorer or top four defenseman or a top six winger or what have you. So that's probably the most important thing um, that I was able to feel most proud about. When it comes to, when it came to my career and some of the difficulties, I think a lot of it showed the ugly side of the game when it came to the contract negotiating. You know, the teams were always trying to say, well, you're not gonna be paid what the other guy's being paid. They wouldn't come out to your face directly and say that, but with NHLPA, we always had a, a list of 10 comps whenever your deal's up. And I always told my agent Breeze, Paperson, Jim Nice, D. Rizzo, Steve Rich. I said, guys, just put me in the middle of that group. I don't have to be in the top part of that that ten. I don't want to be in the bottom part. Put me in the middle part, and I'm good. Yeah. Whenever we started negotiating with a team, I was always off that list. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I had to hold out twice. I lost a lot of money, but I think teams started to understand that I'm not going to take what you're going to give me just because I want to get paid what I'm worth. So I think now the approach and how people see black hockey players, I think, has changed. And if I had a little bit to do with that, a little, I'm not saying I had a lot to do with it, just a little bit. I feel proud about that because now black players want to be seen as black players, as hockey players. That's it. Nothing any different, nothing any special. I had dreads back then. And I know there's teams out there that were questioning, like, does this guy smoke weed? Does he do drugs? Do this? Because all these negative stereotypes of guys that have locks. And it was so not true. That's just the way my hair was. I didn't say, well, look at your armor, Yager. He's got his jersey retired in Pittsburgh. That's last week. He's got long hair. Is he a stoner? <laughs> you know, I never said that. You never had that perception. Right. Teams never asked guys like that to cut their hair. They were embraced for having hockey hair. So why did the teams have to say to me, hey, you got to cut your hair? Mm -hmm. And you saw my whole career. I never cut my hair. So you can see how stubborn I was <laughs> you know, while I was doing it. Those were luscious, <laughs> by the way. Those were some <laughs> luscious locks. It gave me extra uh, concussion proof. <laughs> that's, that's what it did. I had to go up a couple of sizes of my helmet, yeah, but it right. definitely helped. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, I think little things like that, Nikki, are probably the things I'm most proud about mm -hmm. because now you have the black players coming after me. Their path is a little bit more smooth than what mm -hmm. I walked. Yeah. And that's what it's really all about. Make the path coming after you for the people coming after you to be a little bit easier in the, the path that you walked. And I think that's what Willie O'Ree and players like that did for myself. And that's what I try to do for other black players coming up after me. And when you see some of the most impactful players uh, being black hockey players uh, in history, you think of Willie O'Ree, right? The legend that you had just named. I think of a guy like Jerome McGinley, who was probably the best at what he did being a power forward back in the day. He was one of my favorite players growing up. I always awesome. loved watching him. Great. 
Yeah. Um, you think about guys in more of the current day National Hockey League now, like Ryan Reeves and Darnell Nurse, Quentin Byfield, who has just burst onto the scene this year. What is the future for these guys? And when you see these guys being impactful players, not just being pigeonholed into the tough guy role, like you had said earlier, which was which was what others were trying to get you to do in your career. But when you see this, does it just give hope or or it's say, hey, if you're a good player, doesn't matter what you look like you're going to be a good player and play. That's exactly what it's saying. And that's why I believe the hockey community has really opened their eyes with how they see players. And I'll give you, here's a story that I, I've really told many people this story, but there's a guy named Dan Marr and I played Wexford Raiders. We won this, the, the championships. I was leading score in the playoffs and I had a high ankle sprain. So I missed like three or four games and he knew our trainer, Rick Hazel, and he's a scout for the Toronto Maple Leafs. And he came down the room and he's like, the program says you're 170. He goes, there's no way you're 170. And now keep in mind, I got, when I was drafted, I was like 154 soaking wet. Mm. I was like, no, nah, I'm not, whatever. But he started grilling me about why I didn't want to play basketball. <laughs> I was like, what? I'm like, I'm a hockey player. I got hockey gear. I'm like, what are you talking about? Why are you grilling me about basketball? Mm. Like Nick, I'm sure he wouldn't be grilling you about basketball. Right. But it was clear why he was grilling me at the time. Now, fast forward like 20 years. Dan Moore is the director of amateur scouting for, I think, the National Hockey League now. He heads up all the player combine. And, you know, you're seeing black players ranked top 10 all the time mm-hmm. and different players getting, like, prospect of the year. Right. So it's for me to see people's growth and the evolution of what you see as hockey players. You know, back then he might have thought, hey, this guy's a black hockey player. Is he really a hockey prospect? Should he be playing basketball? We don't see many black players playing. I don't really know. Mm-hmm. To now, black players playing out there is, like, it's been normalized. So these players are just being evaluated like everybody else. That's why Quentin Byfield could go second overall. You know, that's why Darnell Nurse could go in the first round to Edmonton Oilers. That's why Evander Kane could go in the first round to the Atlanta Thrashers. Because people's thoughts about black players have evolved, and now a black hockey player is a normal sight to see. So I, I love that about the game. I love that's what we're seeing. And the players that you mentioned now, like you have different roles in every team. Yeah whether you're shut down D an offensive D you could be a tough guy. Still, you could be a power forward. You could be a goal scorer, mm-hmm. but we could be anything you want to be, but we're just good hockey players. And I think we're good people. And how about the uh, diversity work that the national hockey league has done uh, in your opinion? And, and just to name a few, uh, the United by hockey mobile museum, which celebrates the games trailblazers, uh, Black History Month jerseys, which, I mean, some of them are, are incredible. And the Seattle Kraken had uh, theirs just last night uh, um, before the uh, Boston Bruins game. Uh, the Willie O'Ree Community Hero Award, which is given to those who make uh, underrepresented communities feel welcome in hockey. So when you see these different elements that the league is trying to get everybody included into, does that make you feel good? And, and what's your opinion on some of those things that the National Hockey League, the powerhouse is making sure that they can help be uh, a catalyst for the change as well. It's amazing. I mean, you've been in the game, you've been around the game for a long time, you know, whether it's yourself or your dad, you know, nothing happens without support from the top. Mm-hmm. I don't care who you are. You can't go rogue without the support from the commissioner, Bettman, deputy commissioner, Bill Daly, Kim Davis, now Marty Walsh, the executive director of the NHLPA. You have to have their buy-in and they're 100% behind all these efforts behind the change. You're starting to see that, I think it's going to have impact on the game, not the next couple of years, the next 15 to 20 years. I think our game's going to look a lot different. I, I really do. That United by Hockey Mobile Museum is amazing. It goes in different communities. 
to talk about the history of players of color that play the National Hockey League and also professional hockey in general, like Blake Bolden that played women's hockey and Angela James, Hockey Hall of Famer, and other women like that. But I think you have to have the collective efforts. It's not just one group. And I got to tip my, my my hockey helmet, as your dad also says, to the members of my NHL Player Inclusion Coalition. Mm-hmm. Like you mentioned some of those other groups before. It's not just one group that's going to help foster this change. You need many different groups. And our group, it has Seattle Kraken voice JT Brown in there. They do amazing things within the hockey community. We're not always out front and visible and out in the forefront, but the people in our group do so many awesome things. And I'll give you an example of some of the stuff that we do. This past All-Star weekend, we came up with All-Star Overtime. We are just imagine, and I thought, as a young boy growing up in Scarborough, Ontario, suburb of Toronto, if I sat at home and I watched all the All-Star festivities, what would it be like for me to be on that ice a couple of days later? Like, that would just blow your mind. Right. Right. So the National Hockey League, you know, was able to welcome 40 girls to go watch the three-on-three PWHL three-on-three game on the Thursday. On the Friday, the NHL helped welcome 400 boys and girls to FanFest. And then after All-Star Weekend is over that Sunday, the Monday, we brought 30 boys and girls out to skate on Scotiabank Arena. Wow. We had a clinic for an hour. And these kids' minds were blown. (laughs) And then after that, it gets better. We took them in the the Maple Leafs locker room so they could see where Willie Nylander gets dressed, where Austin Matthews ties his skates, where Morgan Riley tapes his stick up. We went on a tour of the Leafs locker room. And then we weren't done yet. We went to the NHL headquarters, went upstairs, NHL headquarters. The Stanley Cup was in the building. Wow. So they saw the Stanley Cup right there, which is a showstopper yeah. anywhere you go. And they had pizza and met with NHL executives. So a couple of the boys and girls, young people, they're high school students. I call them boys and girls because I feel like I'm old now. Uh, they're like, wow. Experience, now, Ace, not old, right? just experience. That's right, experience. <laughs> they're just like, now I, I wish, like, I'm thinking about working in hockey. Like, how do I get a job in hockey? Not how do I play in the NHL? It's how do I work in the game of hockey? Right. And these are all kids that came from immigrant families. We're covered in four different languages um, that afternoon. It was such a beautiful thing to see. You know, it, it was all about igniting that fuel and that passion, these kids that might not have had hockey on their radar. And that's just one small sample size of what we did for NHL All-Star Overtime. Mm-hmm. But we're looking to do stuff like this all over the marketplace. I know George Larac was in Seattle recently with JT yep. Brown. Mm-hmm. And they, they had a ball hockey clinic there. Yeah. And it, this is happening over and over and over again, exposing our game to other people in different communities. And you mentioned the uh, NHLPA Player Inclusion Coalition that you're a co-chair of. Um I would assume that when uh, that was developed, it was kind of a no-brainer for you to want to jump on and, and take part. Like, what is your role? I'd love to know. Just take me through what exactly the impact you've had on there and, and um, you know, what your uh, impact has been on the coalition. Yeah, I'm fortunate to be the co-chair, but you know what? We've got a deep bench. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, we really do. I think, uh, you know, when you play those great teams and anybody can wear the C? Yeah. That, that's what our team is all about. It really is. We have an extremely deep bench, and I'll take you through some of the – we had a bunch of presentations with different teams among the league, and they were looking for different candidates to try to hire in different positions, and we said, you guys have to diversify your, fan, your, your, your front office a little bit, and there's a lot of quality candidates out there. And we had about six or seven different people from our group um, present, and one of the executives on one of the teams said, well, where do we look? And I said – Look at who presented to you guys today. Mm-hmm. 
you know, you have all these amazing men and women. You got Blake Bolden, you've got Julie Chu, Megan Duggan, Al Montoya, uh, Montoya. you have uh, Ryan Reeves, you've got Cam Atkinson, um, you've got Zach Whitehead, you've got Abby Rock. I mean, I could go on and on and on. PK Subban, uh, George Larac. Mm-hmm. But I said it's not just about being diverse and being inclusive because you talked about like Jamal Mayers or a Stanley Cup champion and all the stuff that we're doing within these locker rooms of the educational practice that we're trying to implement with these locker rooms. He said, our team would have been so much better if we had this. And this guy's a Stanley Cup champion. Mm-hmm. And you've had people of color play on these NHL Stanley Cup champion teams like Devontae Smith-Pelly has played. Keegan Colasar has played too. So it's about winning. It's about the right mentality. It's about diverse minds bringing diverse solutions and we just have a lot of strong amazing smart men and women as part of our coalition that bring a lot of great ideas to the table another example of how we've been impactful when a few years ago you've had these incidents where these kids make racial slurs or gestures within the ahl the echl Mm -hmm. well we spent hours upon hours running through educational programs with these players to make sure that they kind of understand what they did and the ramifications of it. But more importantly, they just learn and get better and be better people. Like playing hockey is a privilege. Mm -hmm. It's not a right. You don't deserve to be the NHL team just because you weren't born with a silver spoon in your mouth. Like it's a right. I mean, it's a privilege to play in the NHL. So if you want to earn that privilege back again, you've got to take certain steps. And if you're not willing to do that, well then see you later, go and pump gas or do something else. Yeah. But to the credit for all these young players, uh, they've been pretty open-minded to you know what we're trying to bring to the table because who better to talk about this stuff, Nikki, than someone like myself that's lived it. Right. And I'm talking as a person that's lived it, that wants to see the game get to a better place, not as a bitter person. Like no one would know half these stories if I wasn't asked about it because it's just something that I, I wasn't willing to share. I just, it happened, but I need to work to make sure the game's in a better place. I'm not yelling at someone and pointing my finger saying, this guy, this guy, this guy, I can't believe this. No. There's a reason why my parents tell me you're driving a car, <laughs> your windshield is way bigger than your rearview mirror. Mm-hmm. And you're supposed to spend most of your time looking forward, not behind you. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's how I live my life. Yeah. Making the game better and mm-hmm. the people in it. That's what really strikes me there, Ace. Um, don't stop the work. It's extremely important, obviously. And uh, not that it means much for me, but you're, you're doing an incredible job with it and um, giving an opportunity to people who deserve it and people that are passionate about the game of hockey in whatever role or capacity it is. So round of applause for you, man. You're, you're doing an incredible job and I know you won't stop. So, uh, please, uh, please don't for, uh, for everybody. Um, and on, uh, as we start to wrap up, um, with a little bit lesser of an important thing to talk about, uh, I do want to get your thoughts on the Seattle Kraken. Uh, but important, but obviously this conversation being extremely important as well. Uh, but what have you been your thoughts of the Kraken this year? Uh, as of today, as of record this, um, they're five points out of a playoff spot, four teams to jump. Um, consistency's been a little bit tough this year, but I would love your thoughts on, on the team this year, maybe some players that have stood out to you. Um, and, and your thoughts on the team here in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, before I go on that, I just want to give you a quick shout-out too, Nikki. I think Kraken fans are very fortunate to have you. Speaking of someone that's passionate about the game, your passion just oozes out of you. <laughs> and for a team that hasn't been in the NHL for more than 10 years, a new fan base, to have knowledgeable people like yourself talking about the game, educating about the game, being passionate and loving the game, uh, they're light years ahead of where a lot of these organizations are 
uh, coming on the scene. So definitely appreciate your work. I want to thank you for having me. Uh, Thanks, buddy. For the team I appreciate itself, that very much. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you got it. You got it, man. You're doing an amazing job out there in Seattle. Thank you. Seeing it firsthand, going to the game uh, before the Winter Classic, seeing the the, the response of the fan base there, yeah. Climate Pledge Lean. I think from the top down, the way that organization is built and ran, it really is a testament to people that get it and they're being really intentional about getting it. You know, from Climate Pledge, I mean, that name is sick. Mm-hmm. Climate Pledge Arena to being cashless, to to watching how everyone's being hired within that front office. Like it's, your front office looks like Seattle. That's what it looks like. And that, that that's a beautiful thing. And on the ice, to have the success, getting the postseason last year, being there for the Winter Classic, hearing everyone stay enchanting Joey to court. <laughs> we got goosebumps hearing yeah. Joey, yeah. Joey. It was amazing. And seeing what Ron Francis is, is building there and thinking about long-term sustainability, uh, you know, I don't think I'd want to play the Kraken. I wouldn't want to play. You see McCann, he's a guy that Pittsburgh Penguins probably didn't utilize properly. And now he's out there as a 40-goal guy doing his thing. Uh, Jordan Everly doing his thing as well, too. Um, Vince Dunn, Stanley Cup champion in St. Louis. Now he's you know, a nice two-way defenseman out there in Seattle. So I think there's a lot of good pieces that you have there. I think the one thing that I'm looking at is Shane Wright. He's that X factor to me. You know, what's going to happen with Shane, right? What's he going to develop into? Because I love everything else of what you guys are building out there. Can Shane Wright be that impactful second-line player? I don't know yet. And he's still young, and I think people are so too quick to rush to judgment on young players without giving them a chance to, to really build. He's had a really good job. He's done a really good job in Coachella, playing for the Firebirds. Mm-hmm. But I want to see what he takes that next step. Um, because you've got Matty Beniers, who's had a bit of a tough year this year. But he's going to be fine. As long as you're willing to work, you're going to find your way out of any sort of dark hole you're going to be in. So I, I don't have any questions about Matty Beneers at all. It's it's Shane Wright. He's the X factor to me with if he becomes a player everyone thought he could have been before the draft, I really think you guys are in for something special out there in Seattle. Right, and Shane has had uh, an, an unreal season so far to this point with mm-hmm. the Coachella Valley Firebirds where he's played in 43 games and he's got – 32 points so it's been a real nice year for him down there and I think the development aspect of it too the American Hockey League the ECHL you're there to develop players um, so the future should be bright and a couple other players too coming Jagger Furcus who just hit the 100 point mark playing in the Western Hockey League Carson Raykopf and you know so there's going to be some good uh, some good players coming so the future is uh, is definitely bright ace for being teammates with you at NHL and TNT, breaking down the tapes and and cutting packages and whatnot for you, uh, it's uh, it's an honor to call you uh, now a fellow broadcaster. Um, you're you're one of the most thoughtful, uh, influential uh, guys in the game, and uh, you talk about my passion. Your passion is is incredibly evident as well. So I know you're a busy guy. You get pulled in a lot of different directions, but very very grateful for you coming on and spending some time with us uh, with some important conversation, some hockey talk. Uh, but appreciate you as always, and uh, continued best of luck to you. You got it, Nikki. Thank you again for having me. Appreciate it, Kraken fans. Keep rolling. Go Kraken. All right, buddy. And oh, yeah, by the way, Bowie, keep your head up because this is coming for you. He said to pass that message along to you. Keep your head up. <laughs> we are aware. Ace, thanks, buddy. Take care, man. You got it. You're welcome. <laughs> Signals from the Deep is the official podcast of the Seattle Kraken, hosted by Nick Olchek and produced by me, Grant Beery. Have a question for Nick? 
Leave a voicemail on the Signals from the Deep hotline at 206-279-7810 or send an email to signals at seattlekraken.com. Your question could be featured on an upcoming episode. 